You're listening to The Cancer History Project, a podcast of oral histories and interviews with the people who have shaped oncology as we know it. Created to mark the 50th anniversary of the National Cancer Act of 1971, The Cancer History Project is a growing, collaborative, historical resource by cancer centers and other oncology organizations. The Cancer History Project is operated by The Cancer Letter, the longest-running oncology news publication established in 1973. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board, our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, City of Hope, SWOG Cancer Research Network, and the Hope Foundation for Cancer Research, Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, Sarah Cannon Research Institute, UPMC Hillman Cancer Center, and many others. View a full list of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com. I'm Alex Carolyn, Editorial Associate with the Cancer History Project. In today's episode, Dr. Robert Wynn, Director of VCU Massey Cancer Center, and Dr. John Stewart, Founding Director of LSU Health LCMC Health Cancer Center, interview Wayne A.I. Frederick, President of Howard University. This interview focuses on the legacy of LaSalle LaFall, a Howard University surgical oncologist. Stewart and Frederick were both mentored by LaFall. This recording is part of a series of interviews conducted by Robert Wynn, guest editor of the Cancer History Project during Black History Month. You can read the transcript of this recording at the link in the description of this episode. Thank you for uh, taking the time to uh to do this interview with us. I, I know you were one of uh, one of his mentees. And so, you know, I think it's important that we get the story out, so, um, that we get the story about his career and his influence in surgery and in American um, academia. Okay, so we have Dr. Rob Wynn. Um, he's on the screen. He's the Cancer Center Director at Virginia Commonwealth University. Mm-hmm. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. And uh... Uh, looking forward to uh, working with you and, and, and hopefully working with you at the ACS. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. I know our, our time is short. Um, so Dr. Frederick, Dr. Paul had a tremendous impact on oncology. Uh, would you mind relaying to us some of his most important contributions as you see them? Sure. You know, I think um, the, the two things that come to mind, one is, one is his impact on training. Um, if you look at the time, just the time that he spent at Howard, um, he was on faculty for in excess of 60 years. And during that period of time between students and residents, uh, the number of lives that he changed in terms of career trajectory, um, getting people interested in surgery, getting people interested in uh, surgical oncology. And then outside of surgical oncology I would, and surgery, I would also say he influenced a lot of other medical students who take care of cancer patients and in some, in some cases in an ancillary fashion, but they still use a lot of, um, you know, his, his teachings and his philosophy around obsessing about the patient, making the patient the center of our uh, affection and uh, providing hope, uh, which he defined as um, the anticipation of tomorrow. And so I think that that's a major influence. The second influence was when he became president of the American Cancer Society. As the first African-American to do so, he had a very 
um, at that time, had the agenda uh, to bring a focus on closing and highlight, highlighting, I should say, and closing in that order, uh, the disparities that African-Americans and other underrepresented minorities were experiencing in terms of cancer outcomes. And I, I think that was a bold initiative in 1970 to, to put on the table, um, but it was the right initiative. And it was the initiative that um, I, I would say also led to lots of changes that would come all down through the years, you know, and I think that impact of him setting that bold agenda then uh, was important. So much so that um, I have a bust in my office that the American Cancer Society gave him at the end of his tenure, mm -hmm. um, because I do feel that that was one of his most pivotal contributions. And so he gave me that uh, bust before his passing wow. uh, to ask me to keep it as well. It's beautiful. So speaking of students, I was fortunate enough to be one of uh, Dr. LaFall's students. Um, you were class of 94, I was class of 95. And Dr. LaFall used to quote Dr. Charles Drew. And he said, excellence in performance transcends artificial barriers created by men. Yeah. So as his students, our quote from him is equanimity under duress. What does that mean to you? Yeah. You know, as a Charles Drew professor, uh, as Sergi here at Howard now, both of those men are inextricably tied to a lot of what I think of in terms of philosophy. Equanimity under duress, um, I, I think I probably use it every day in terms of saying it to someone else. And I, um, you know, I'm, I'm a board of director in several um, public companies. And I say to the CEOs all the time that one of the lessons in surgery is equanimity under duress. But what it means is that when stuff is going wrong, everything is all over the place you have to get quieter. And the way I explain it to medical students is that when the patient is bleeding, I don't get to throw instruments across the room and yell and scream and stomp my feet. As a matter of fact, if anything, the only thing that I get to do is to become more focused. Mm -hmm. And my description of that is that almost everything around me slows down, it gets quiet and you get to focus in on it. And in my role as the university president, that happens all the time. Every crisis when everybody wants to respond and have a knee-jerk reaction, to kind of catch the, the latest news cycle, um, I tell the team the same thing. Uh, we need to slow ourselves down, make sure we are really dealing with the right problem and not just putting a Band-Aid on a wound that's probably three times the size of the Band-Aid. And so yeah, I think it's a very important adage that he left us with and one that uh, certainly has um, served me very well. Okay. So how's Dr. LaFall's influence shaped you as a person as a surgeon and as a leader? Yeah, you know, in many ways, in a lot of ways, um, I'd say he became a father to me. Um, I, I, I didn't anticipate having such a close personal relationship, but um, that's, that's what occurred. You know, I, I lost my own dad a month after my third birthday. And so Dr. LaFall, in many ways, I think went above and beyond just being a mentor. Um, that shaped me in terms of my own fatherhood, I would say today. The relationship I have with my 17-year-old son and 15-year-old daughter, I think, comes from kind of that same um, attention to detail that he put into my relationship. We never started any conversation without him asking me how I was doing, how was the family doing, et cetera. It doesn't matter what the nature of the conversation was, the gravity of what we were going to discuss. It always started that way. And so uh, I, a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity, probably now two months ago, I had the opportunity to take my two kids uh, to the operating room to watch me operate. And um, if I do nothing else in my career, uh, that Sydney was a zenith. To have them see me in what I think is the most sacred space, 
that I've been able to enter and to see them behind their mask, uh, get the same rush of adrenaline that I got the first time I was in that space. I was an incredible feeling. My son, I, you know, came up to me after and said, I just, I don't, I can't explain it that, but I just felt like this rush of excitement when you made that incision. And, you know, that's not what you're expecting your kids to, to think in that situation. I'm just hoping they don't faint. And the fact that he got that <laughs> sense of exhilaration says a lot. Right. I think the other thing that he did was, um, you know, in terms of his influence on me personally, was leading by example. Uh, so I still operate to this day. I'm probably the only university president in America who does that now. And I, I don't do it because simply because I can, I do it because I must. Um, the ability to pass on what I've learned to another generation um, is important. And that's why he did it and he did it and led by example. And so that's important. You know, when you lead a faculty as diverse as this one is, um, it has to be clear that you have to lead from the front and lead by example at, at times. Um, this evening, I'll teach a, a course in um, the school of education. And when I say teach a course, I'm not a guest lecturer. It's my course. Uh, for the whole semester. And so, you know, I, I carry my own load um, to make sure that everybody has. And I think that was one of the things that he left with me as well on a personal note that, that you have to lead by example as well. And so, you know, there are other very personal things in terms of how he carried himself and, uh, you know, little things that he would do. Uh, I like to call secrets of the trade that I, I still do to this day and they, they bode well, you know, uh, for navigating life in general. And I think that those are some of the things that I also appreciate that my close relationship with me afforded me the opportunity to, to learn. So, you know, it, it's interesting, and I'm sure this is gonna be a little off script, but um, the morning after Dr. LaFall passed, you ran a 5K in all yeah. black in recognition of his influence on life. So to me, that was a big statement, Wayne. That was a big statement yeah. about all the impact that he's had on you as students, as residents in the world. So thank you for that. Yeah. I appreciate right. it. So if Dr. LaFall were here today, uh, what advice do you think he would give us as we address structural racism, the COVID epidemic, yeah. the unmasking of the unequal policing of African-American men and women? Yeah. You know, I, I think there are two things that he was telling us about all along that to this day um, apply. You know, one was the Charles Drew quote that you used earlier, excellence of performance transcends all artificial barriers created by man. And his point there was not that we ignore the oppression and the things that must be changed, but that while we do that, we also must be excellent. So as we occupy the spaces that we rightfully should be in, that people cannot question us being there when we get there, that we don't then get there and then start thinking of preparing ourselves appropriately, but that we are performing in an excellent way that when we're there, uh, the only thing people could say is, geez, why do we keep them out of here for so long? You know, that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, and whether they acknowledge it in word or in deed, um, they will acknowledge it. And I think that he would still do that. I think the other thing that he would say as well is that we have to amplify each other's humanity. And ultimately at the end of the day, that is what a lot of these things are about. Um, not just respecting or acknowledging each other's humanity, but amplifying each other's humanity. And that's a big difference. And I think he made a point about that. The dignity with which he spoke about treating patients and affording them the fullness of their humanity, I think is what uh, he would 
he would have um, told us today would bode well for us. And that is that uh, we should be amplifying each other's humanity, not just simply acknowledging it. And that means that you have to go the extra step, not just to provide opportunity, but to also make sure the support systems are there. And as you said, as you take down systemic racism, you've got to replace it with something else. And what we have to replace it with is good infrastructure and support uh, for the people who've been oppressed. And I think that that's what he would have been advocating for us to be focused on. I have a follow-up question on that. Sure. You know, did he ever tell you any of the stories about how he started uh, and any of the challenges he had? And, and in fact, I'm asking specifically because you may know the story with the relationship with him and Dr. Walter Lawrence, who yeah. also just passed, yeah. first cancer center director at VCU Massey. So any oh. stories that he um, actually, that you remember him telling you about yeah. that time? You know, there, there, there are two stories in particular that I think put, you know, uh, pertinent to this topic, and especially that issue about people amplifying his own humanity. Um, he graduated from what was then called Florida A&M College at the age of 18 with one B on his transcript. And like most African-American students, not just at that time, but even today, didn't take standardized tests well. And so he did not get into any of the medical schools that he could apply to. And at that time, I believe there were only uh, two medical schools he could apply to, um, Harry and Howard. He didn't get into either one. Um, that resulted in uh, his university president, uh, President Green, I believe um, at the time, petitioning Mordecai Wyatt Johnson to admit him and a fellow student um, into Howard's med school. Um, they were, the other student had straight A's. Um, and so sure enough, um, the dean of the med school admitted both of them and he would go on to graduate number one in his class. So he often talked about the fact that that grace that his university president afforded him by making a personal petition on his behalf to get him into medical school um, you know, was something else. While he was in medical school, his dad would die um, unexpectedly. And while he was waiting tables in the Northeast in the summer, um, you know, he came across a gentleman and uh, kind of just told the gentleman, he had developed a relationship for being there a couple of summers with that gentleman. And he would write that gentleman a letter at the beginning of the semester and, you know, explain to him that his father died and that he would, you know, um, like to borrow, I think at that time it was $500. Um, and the guy wrote him back with a check because he was so impressed with Dr. Lafour waiting tables um, and told him, you don't have to pay me back, just pay it forward. And he would always recall that story. And so his generosity himself and his philanthropy did that. And then on the issue of Walter Lawrence, you know, um, you talk about not just equanimity under duress, but also I would say putting yourself in an uncomfortable position. Um, and the story there, as he had told it to me, was that Walter Lawrence advocated for him to be admitted to the Southern Surgical. Um, they would refuse um, to admit him. And Walter Lawrence got up in that meeting and said, if Dr. LaFall is not qualified to be a part of this organization, then I'm not qualified to be a part of this organization. And I believe in the history of the Southern Surgical, he's the only person who ever um, withdrew from the Southern Surgical. And because he withdrew and because of the way their bylaws were written, I believe Walter Lawrence would go to his grave, never being a general member of that body. But I believe they readmitted him as an honorary member um, at some point in his, in his career. So when he spoke of what Walter Lawrence did 
on his behalf in terms of his advocacy for him, he spoke about the fact that um, there are other people who will amplify your humanity, who will be more than just allies. And I think Walter Lawrence's example is exactly that. He didn't just advocate for Dr. LaFall. He made a personal career sacrifice among colleagues who could impact his career at a time that he was vulnerable, but felt it was the right thing to do. And so he had a great deal of respect for Walter Lawrence for doing it. So the interesting thing about Dr. Lawrence is I actually met him at a Southern Surgical Association meeting in, in, in the homestead. Um, and I thanked him for that, not because he had to do it, but because he stood up for my hero, right? And because of Dr. LaFall, we are able to transcend the heights that we we're able to in surgery. So that, that was a pivotal moment. And, and again, Dr. Lawrence needs to be highly, highly commended for his actions. I absolutely agree. You know, and it's, it's you know, I think the other thing I would mention, especially as you talk about Dr. LaFall and, and Dr. Lawrence, Dr. LaFall was always quick to highlight people like Dr. Lawrence, which I think is another personality trait that he had that was, was great because he always believed in lifting up others. You lift up yourself um, as well. And so people like Dr. Lawrence don't often get, I think, the recognition they deserve for taking those types of stances that, if more people in our society did, we'd probably have a, a much more <laughs> complete union. Great. One quick question, Liz. So if Dr. LaFall were here today, what role would he see the cancer centers within HBCUs playing within the 21st century? Yeah, you know, he, he would be very sensitive about the fact that the disparities that exist, that we're not closing those gaps quickly enough. I think today in particular, he'd be even more acutely concerned that after the pandemic, as we've had a decrease in screening, as we've shut down um, access even further, that the most vulnerable are going to come out of this in a much worse position. And some of the gains that we've made on life expectancy are going to slip away. So I think that he would be sounding the alarm that we really needed to start investing um, in those and making sure that we were training the next generation who would be uh, willing to take care of folks in those communities. I think the next five years, cancer outcomes in African-Americans could be disastrous um, as a result of the pandemic and its impact. Um, everything from the economic impact to the fact that we decrease screening in those neighborhoods, et cetera. And so I, I think now is the time to sound the alarm. I think five years from now, when we look up, we could be in a very difficult place. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Frederick. Are there any parting words that you'd like to leave us with? No, no. Thanks for doing this. I, I appreciate it. And so thanks for thinking of me. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, we, we think about Dr. LaFall's students and here you are as the president of Howard University. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you don't live the legacy out much bigger than that, right? So <laughs> well, uh, he's uh, I, 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 the one thing that I, I do cherish is the fact that he was so proud of that fact. You know, as he would say, I trained a university president, so he loved that. So I actually do have one more question on that note. So when you think of, we talk about Dr. Uh, LaFall as a surgeon, what was his greatest innovation and what was his greatest impact on the field? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, it's, it's 
I'm, I'm going to mention something that I probably never mentioned publicly. Um, long before we did timeout and it was written about and adopted and tested, he actually did timeout, you know, and I'm sure John may remember this, but if you went to the operating room with him to do a breast case, even as a student, he would ask the patient in front of you, you know, which breast are we operating on today, Ms. Smith? And she would say left and he would, you know, even have her raise her left arm. And then he would look around the room and say, which breast are we operating on? He would put the films up and look at it. And before we started, he would make everybody stop and acknowledge that we were operating on the left breast. Yeah. And years later, when Tybot came about, I would chuckle to myself <laughs> that he could have <laughs> totally just could have been the LaFall timeout because, oh, you know, how much, but I, I mentioned that again, because I think he was such a thoughtful, methodical human being in terms of what he did. And so the impact I think that he had was that issue of always being prepared, about always giving yourself, about always being excellent in every single moment, that there wasn't an opportunity to necessarily let your guard down when it came to giving the best because somebody's life um, you know, mattered. And I think the humanity and dignity with which he went to those patients treated with I think was the biggest impact. And like I said, it doesn't matter what field you went into, as long as you were a medical student, uh, I think you got that. So everything from turning in your case report and having him correct the spelling, you know, I turned in my case report and uh, got one point taken off because I missed out an F in the fall on the cover sheet. <laughs> <laughs> and I was amazed that he paid that much attention. I think I still have that paper at home. And I, we used to, I used to tell him that story repeatedly. He would chuckle at it. He was a very humble man too, you know, um, John's classmate, uh, I think he, he may have been a year after you, um, Tony Rankin, uh, Tony who's a big yes. surgeon, Mark Rankin, yes, um, his father was Tony Rankin. Mark Rankin um, was at a party at the Epps' house and um, fell into a pool when he was around five or six. So bigger kids in the pool jumped in and started to drown. Dr. LaFall in a three-piece suit jumped in and pulled him out. Mark Rankin told me that story. I got goosebumps. And so I couldn't wait for my Monday morning meeting with Dr. LaFall. And I run in there and I say, listen, I saw Mark, I saw Mark Rankin this weekend. He told me the story and I tell him the whole story. And the whole time he's looking at me totally deadpan. And as soon as I'm done, he says, yep, that's exactly what happened. There's no use in that story. So how are you and your family doing? <laughs> he did not add one he didn't add a single word to the story. He didn't <laughs> tell me how much the suit cost. I mean, nothing like that. <laughs> the average human being would have described the shoes they were wearing. He just moved on to the next thing. And so, again, you know, that humility uh, just spoke volumes about who he was. I like it. There was no yeast in that story. Yeah, I like that's it. Right. That's right. <laughs> you, you think it's an impact on the field? I think on the field, really focusing on the cancer disparities. You know, I, I think he was big about that. Both in direct ways in terms of how he treated patients, the things he wrote about, but also when you look at some of the major things, I believe, you know, when you look at him appearing on primetime TV to talk about colonoscopy and its impact in colorectal cancer, to see a black man as an expert in the field at that time, at that day and age, highlighted many things about cancer care. You know, it, it highlighted that there weren't enough African-Americans involved. It highlighted that, um, you know, he was one of the most talented in the country. 
at um, providing care for those patients. And, you know, it, it highlighted the issue at hand. I mean, his words about the issue about screening um, were on point. And so, you know, that wasn't the typical thing that somebody would do that would impact the field, but I think it had a massive impact, you know, um, in terms of how the country viewed an issue like that. And colorectal cancer got a lot of attention around that issue as well. Thank you. John? This that is great. it. That is it. Thank you so much, Wayne, for taking All the right. time. No follow. Right. Good to see you. You guys take care. Stay safe. All right. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Cancer History Project podcast. Our archives are available online for free at cancerhistoryproject.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at cancerhistproj. If your institution or organization would like to contribute to our growing collection of historical documents, or if you'd like to suggest an interview or topic, please email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.